The reading this morning is taken from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. And this is on page 960 of your church Bible. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But, you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But, you ask, how have we defiled you? by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Thanks be to God. I wonder if I just ask you to put up your hand if you or maybe your wife or whoever does the Christmas cards in your family uh, wrote a Christmas card this year saying... We must meet up in 2011. Keep your hand up if it was somebody you wrote to who you hadn't seen for at least three years. We live busy, frantic lives. We are more mobile than we've ever been before. It would be interesting to know how many of our church family in any particular week are away travelling on business, I guess there'll be quite a few. We move home more frequently. 
certainly more than uh, previous generations, and each time we move, we get to know new people, we make new relationships and contacts, we accumulate more friendships. Of course, the, the result is that we have a larger number of friends and contacts, but it means many shallower relationships rather than fewer, deeper relationships. And the danger is that for many people, God can become just one of many relationships. And even worse is that for many people, they don't even have time to get to know him in the first place. There's just too much going on in their lives. Bethan and Tenebu were over here recently from, from Senegal. And it was the first time that Tenebu had uh, been to this country. A bit of a culture shock for him. And I did ask him about, you know, what were his impressions of, uh, of, of England? And uh, I think he assumed that being a Christian country, that it would be full of Christians. And I was a bit disappointed by the, uh, the shallowness of the British people. How people don't talk about deeper issues. And uh, that uh, even with Christians, they, don't rare, they rarely talk about their faith. Well, for the benefit of those who weren't with us last week, we've started a sermon series on the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi, just to recap, was a prophet who prophesied around 450 B.C., uh, prophesying to the people of Israel who had returned from captivity in Babylon in around 538 um, BC. It was a time of widespread disillusionment and disobedience. And it was very different from the time when the people had first returned from exile. At that time, the prophet Haggai uh, challenged them as to their, um, their obedience, their priorities. And they acknowledged that they had got them wrong. And they set about building rebuilding the temple and they finished that in 515 BC but by the time of Malachi the people couldn't see anything wrong with the way they were living um, or with their worship they weren't happy with their situation economically they weren't particularly prosperous and uh, uh, politically they were still under the domination of a foreign power and there was a sense of blaming God for not keeping his side of the covenant which is why last week the first thing that the Lord says to them through Malachi was, I have loved you. This was in verse 2. I have loved you. And he pointed to the fact of his unconditional electing love, that he had chosen them before they had loved him. He had loved them before they loved him. This was the covenant relationship that we read about in Exodus where God said, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And it was a relationship which required um, them to respond to him in obedience. So we had the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, and the first one being, you shall have no other gods before me. It's an exclusive relationship. God has chosen them, and he expects to be first in their lives. Now the problem in Malachi's time is that they are not worshipping him as God. They are dishonouring him. They are, as it says here, showing contempt for his name. And the way in which that has become clear is in their sacrifices. They're not bringing their best. They are, they're shortchanging God. They're just doing what they can get away with. There's no real desire to please and honour God. Now, we don't, of course, bring animal sacrifices today. At least I'm assuming there's no lambs or oxen outside there waiting. And there's a reason for that, which obviously we'll come on to. So what is the relevance then of this passage for us today? 
Well, it addresses a fundamental question, which is what is our attitude to God? What is our attitude to God? Is he someone we value above all else? Or is he just another casual relationship who we can fit into our lives when we have a bit of space and time? So what this passage is really all about is our worship. And by that I mean, as we said with the the children earlier on, it's giving God the honour, the praise that he deserves because he is God. And the three questions I want to address this morning, uh, first of those is why why does God deserve our honour? Why does he deserve that? Secondly, what are these sacrifices that we are expected to make today? If we're not bringing animals for sacrifice, what are the sacrifices we're expected to make? And why should God accept them? Why should he accept those sacrifices? Well, let's start with that first question. Why does God deserve our honour? Have a look at verse 6. If you've got your Bible open there, page 960. It says, A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? God clearly expects here our honour, and he uses two descriptions of himself to justify that. The first is that he's a father, he's a, our heavenly father. And we're very familiar, I'm sure, with that teaching from Jesus about God as father, son, and spirit. Um, Jesus very often used that, that sense of he is our father. When he taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray to, to our father. In Ephesians, uh, we're told how we have been adopted as his children. We are his children, he is our father. But I wonder what that means to you to know that God is your father. What does that, what does that conjure up? What does that sense of relationship, does that um, mean for you? I guess for most people it would be the fact that he is caring and protective. He provides for all our needs. And so it's a sense of feeling loved and safe and secure, which is all true. It's a great reassurance, isn't it, to know that. After all, Jesus said, if, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's a God who provides and protects. But what else does God as Father expect from us? What it says in the Sixth Commandment is, honour your father and mother. And in God's eyes, an important part of the relationship between father and child is honour and respect. And to understand what that means, it might help just to turn to other passages where it refers to God as father. For example, in Proverbs 3, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. So here we see that to honour a father is to accept the teaching and discipline of a father. That's crucial to the role of a father. Or Proverbs 23, it says, Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. This is saying acknowledge that you owe your existence to your parents. You know, they are the ones who gave you life. So respect them for that. Or as it carries on in that same, same chapter of Proverbs, it says, Buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom discipline and understanding. The father of a righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. And here we see it's a sense of appreciating the wisdom and knowledge of a father. 
The father delights in a wise son when he's passed down that wisdom to him. And so the reason God says honour me as a father is that the relationship the child has with his father or her father should be full of respect. And I wonder whether maybe the lack of honour and respect that we show towards God today is due to a change in the relationships that there are in society today between parents and children. We many children growing up with absent fathers. Maybe they don't even know who their father is. There be others where the father's rarely at home. And there's also been, for, for those who do have fathers, a change in the way uh, people parent these days. There's, there's, I guess, a reaction against the, maybe, the sort of authoritarian and aloof fathers that may have been in previous generations, towards a sense of more palliness and familiarity. Of course, what that can mean is that those fathers themselves haven't actually grown up and become responsible. I don't know whether any of you saw the um, film or read the book called About a Boy. And the film is played by Hugh Grant, um, probably playing well to, to character, uh, playing a guy at the time in his late 30s who um, is portrayed as totally selfish, totally irresponsible, basically somebody who hasn't grown up. And it's interesting that in the, the film it's the, the young boy who uh, encourages the, the, the man to grow up and become responsible. Well, what is going on in this passage here is that Malachi is showing to the people here of Israel that rather than just being more grateful to a father who provides, they should show more honour to a father, more respect to a father who is, wis- who is wise and knowledgeable. A father who, in the words of um, the book of Jude, has glory, majesty, power and authority. And that comes out in the other way in which God is presented here in this passage, which is God as Lord Almighty. Verse 1 also says, If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. There are different names used for God in the Bible. In this particular passage, this name Lord Almighty is used throughout. I think it's about ten times it occurs in the passage which uh, Margaret read for us. Sometimes translated as Lord of the hosts, the Lord of the the heavenly forces who is all-powerful, for whom nothing is impossible. Somebody who says here in verse 12, not in in an arrogant way here, which would be the case if it were a human saying it, but as God, he can say, sorry, in verse 11, my name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among nations. The nations. Or in verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Yes, he's saying, I've chosen you as a special nation, but through you all nations will be blessed and all will worship me and bow down before me. Such a God deserves honour and respect. And the problem is, he's not receiving that from his people. As he says to the priests there, the people representing the the, the people of Israel, he says, you show contempt for my name. How have they done that? Well, he says, by placing defiled food on the altar, by bringing blind, crippled, diseased animals as sacrifices. Now, of course, the priests are at uh, fault for accepting these animals, but the people is the people who actually brought them in the first place. And so God is displeased with them here. And he uses pretty strong language, doesn't he? Look again at verse 10. He says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. 
and I will accept no offering from your hands. He's saying, who do you think you're trying to kid here? Look at verse 14. He says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king. What they're doing, he's saying, is holding back their best for themselves. It's saying to God, actually God, I don't think you're, you're worthy of my best. No, I, I'm going to keep that for my pleasure, for, for my selfishness. I'm going to give you, I've got something here spare I can give you, but the best is for me. And I think what is going on here is they've lost that sense of God's greatness. And they've now put themselves in the position of king, which of course is what sin is all about, isn't it? Putting ourselves in the position of king instead of God as king. Well, how does this apply to us today? What are the sacrifices that we are expected to make today? As I said, we're no longer expected to make animal sacrifices to God. The offerings required by the law are offerings that prefigured that of Jesus Christ. And now that he has offered the final sacrifice, they are done away with. Let's just turn to Hebrews um, 10. A great book which uh, explains the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. If you turn to Hebrews 10, verse 11, on page 1208 of the Church Bibles. Just read from 11 to 14. It says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus has offered the one perfect sacrifice to take away sins forever to do away with them he's allowed us through that to approach God but the Bible still uses the language of sacrifice you know so if we were to turn to 1 Peter it says there describes the New Testament church as a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ or in Hebrews 13 if you were to flick on it says there through Jesus therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruits of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Well, what are, then are those sacrifices that we should be making? Well, our natural human desire is to put ourselves first, isn't it? I mean, putting ourselves first means holding back something from God. Holding it back so we can enjoy it. And that is the decision we make when we become a Christian, when we give our lives to to Christ. We're saying that we want to put him first in every aspect of our lives. What does that involve? What sort of things are we talking about here? Well, maybe in our money, in our offerings. Do we put money aside each month for the Lord first? Or do we see what's left over after we've spent what we want ourselves? 
commodity that many of us have in short supply that we mentioned right at the beginning is time, isn't it? Because we live such busy lives. How can we hold back our time from God? Well, an obvious example is uh, in coming to church to worship with God's people. The fact that you're here this morning shows that you acknowledge that. And that is what God expects us to do. He expects us to come and offer our praise and encourage his people, encourage each other. Do we take our appointment with God on a Sunday seriously? Do we take it in terms of our preparation for that, in terms of our punctuality for that? Do we take that as a serious as we would take a, maybe a meeting with a client or your boss on a Monday morning? Or do we have a casual, laid-back approach to, to our time with God? What about the gifts and talents that God has given us? Do we use them for our advancement, our enjoyment? Or for God's glory. For example, here's the many musicians that we're blessed with in this church who uh, I'm sure will play on their own, enjoy doing that, play in concerts and uh, uh, maybe even uh, give, give lessons to, to, to allow others to, to learn those instruments. Here they are giving up that talent so that we can enjoy that worship and we praise God for them. And others the time we spend with God on our own in, in prayer and Bible study? Do we wait until we have a spare minute, which may not happen? Or do we set aside a time, first of all, get a priority in our, in our diaries that we will spend with God and look forward to that? Then there's the doing good, which was specifically mentioned in the Hebrews, wasn't there? The doing good, sharing with others. That's also sacrifice, isn't it? Because giving up our time and our belongings to help those in need. Now we could go on with many more examples and only you and God know how much of your lives you have sacrificed for God. But the final question I'd like to address is why should God accept our sacrifices? God said here to the Israelites, I'm not pleased with you and I will accept no offering from your hands. What is to say that God will accept our offerings? After all, we will never be able to offer perfect sacrifices, will we? All those areas that we've just been mentioning, we we all fail in all of them, don't we, really, if we're honest with ourselves. None of us is perfect. So what should we do? Should we just give up and and throw in the towel and say it's hopeless? Well, the answer to that is no. And the reason is that Jesus has made that ultimate sacrifice for us that we read about just now. Let me read again, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If it were just a question of performing all the rituals, then we would never meet God's perfect standards. And we'd be racked with a sense of guilt that, that sadly many people do feel they've been brought up in certain churches with certain teaching. The Bible tells us that Jesus has done that for us. He's made it possible for us to be forgiven and for God to accept us on the basis of his sacrifice. He is our great high priest. And so the answer there is because they are made through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But secondly, because they are made with submissive and humble hearts. They are made with the right attitude. It's possible that we are able to do all those things that we mentioned as sacrifices, that we are able to commit our time, our money, our talents to the Lord's work, 
but they're still not acceptable to God. Why might that be the case? Because we've done it with the wrong attitude, the wrong heart. Maybe we've done it reluctantly, maybe we've done it unwillingly out of a sense of duty. Maybe we've done it because we think that actually if we do these things really well then God will be pleased with us. He will accept us. And so as we've turned up to church and got involved, we've constantly got an eye on what everybody else is doing and comparing ourselves with them. How do we, we, we match up? How will God accept us? The Lord wants a joyful heart. He wants us to be here this morning because we know that that is the best thing that we could possibly be doing this morning. What else could compare with meeting with God? What else would we want to be doing this morning? If we're coming with that attitude, that is what makes him pleased. We haven't got enough time this morning to look at at chapter 2 really, but um, in his admonition for the priests there, it is clear that God is looking for those who will enjoy the covenants of life and peace, it says there, who will stand in awe of God who will put aside falsehood, who will walk with God in peace and uprightness. God is looking, as I close with some words from Hosea 6, he's looking, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and I desire acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings.